Hey, everybody. Welcome. It is so great to have you in what we call our good news segment. And, you know, this segment is really a little bittersweet. And I just want to talk about it. Um, many of you have heard both me and Ellen and several other hosts talk about the launch of our addiction recovery channel. Um, and you've asked me why. Uh, why that one, Pat? You have 10 channels which you're launching. You're expanding. The women's channel came first. And now you're talking about the addiction recovery channel second. Well, I don't need to explain that to you because my guest today will explain that to you. Uh, we have passed a level in the United States, can't talk for the world, but we have passed a level beyond anything any of us thought we could even record in the world of addiction. And it doesn't matter how many movies you make about opioids. It doesn't matter how much coverage you have. You know, we watch what's going on and yet the bottom line is, what are we doing to save lives? Today, joining me here today is an amazing individual. This is not a conversation for Lorraine. This is actually a purpose and a passion. Lorraine Martin, President and CEO of National Safety Council, is joining me here today because this is where we have to be helping to save lives from opioid overdoses. And I, I don't say that lightly. And what I will say about it is it happens times where people that are using don't even know that they've entered that zone. Lorraine, Thank you for joining me here today. Oh, thank you, Dr. Pat. I want to talk to my first point. And, you know, my mom um, passed away as a drug addict. And back then, they didn't call them opioids, right? They called what they called them. When when uh, doctors used to write prescriptions for women that were too noisy, bar barbiturates, I don't even know what we called them. But even back then, there was a lack of awareness. And the individual that was taking these drugs wasn't even aware. What are you finding? Is that still the case? It still is the case that we don't have enough information about the drugs that we're taking, whether they're prescribed or otherwise. And that's a place that the National Safety Council has been working for at least over a decade is to help with education of what you're being prescribed, what it might do to you, and if there are alternatives, because there actually, in many cases, are alternatives to opioids to help with inflammation, to help with uh, pain. Um, so just so much more. And yes, sometimes we don't know what we're being given, whether it's a prescription or unfortunately now with drugs that might just be something your buddy gives you at work, you hurt your knee, you want to stay on the job. They say they have a prescription for something that is a painkiller. They hand it to you. It's laced with fentanyl, one pill, and one pill can kill. So there's just so much awareness that we have to have around this because at this point, Dr. Pat, we're losing 200 people a day to an overdose in our country. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would venture to say to check fact check me on this, but I would venture to say that that is understated because the amount of information you can get or even the amount of family wants to you know, provide you with that puts an individual in that situation. But you mentioned something and I want to get back to it. The numbers are staggering. Right. You know, we're talking about death, we're, but but there's there's steps before death that we're, we're just not paying attention to. But I want to get back to one thing you said, fentanyl. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know how to talk about fentanyl because it's being laced in almost everything coming from the street because it is so addictive, right? It's addictive and it's very deadly as well. And you don't know what kind of concentration you're getting, even if you do know that there's something having to do with fentanyl and the drugs that you're taking. You don't know the, the dosage. Um, and it's very, very lethal. Like I said, it really can be one pill 
and somebody can be on the floor in an overdose. And if you don't know how to respond or you don't have emergency attention nearby, they could lose their life on the spot. One pill. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about your mission here, because we're not just talking about the problem here. We're also talking about a solution and what you all are doing. You know, this is this is a great conversation for you and I to have. And I'm sure we've had so many of them. But underneath this, there is really something new, something that can be done. Tell us about that. There is. So the National Safety Council has been around for 110 years. And we look at what's causing people to get injured or lose their life. And right now, the number one cause of unintended death, both in our world and in our workplaces, is overdoses. So something happened very recently, and that is that the FDA approved for over-the-counter, you can just go to your drugstore and get it, to get what's called an opioid overdose reversal medication or drug. And you might have heard some of the brand names, but the generic is called naloxone. Um, and it is available now so that you can have it at your workplace, in your home, in your schools, lots of programs across the nation to make sure it's available for you. It's very easy to use. You cannot hurt someone, which is fantastic. Um, and it literally can save their life. Give them a second chance of their would be dead otherwise. And now you have done what's needed to avert the emergency and get that person back onto the road to recovery. So the over-the-counter uh, designation by the FDA is key. And then our awareness is that workplaces need to be part of this equation. 9% of the deaths in workplaces are overdoses. In some states, Dr. Pat, California, it's closer to 20% yeah. of the workplace fatalities are overdoses. Yeah. We have to get this to be a workplace response. And that's why we've created our Respond Ready Workplace. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we don't think about this. And yet in the latest movies and series that have come out, clearly when you look at the people involved in those, and those were true stories, the event happens in the workplace, whether it be an entrepreneur or it be, you know, somebody that did something. I mean, these were things that happened, excluding sports. Let's exclude sports for a minute because that's a whole nother category. We could do a whole hour on that. But we're talking about a range where people are really, they just, they want to keep their lives in order. They want to be able to work. And this by far is the trickiest solution they could apply. One, it gives them the relief they need immediately. And then what it does, it gives them the disbelief that they get from now using it. So what can we do to make all of us aware with employers? Because this, I think, has got to be key. Yeah. And, and whether it's a substance use issue that someone has, or whether it's just, like I said, one pill that someone gave you, people have jobs and they're, a big part of their day is at the workplace. And thankfully, that means they're most cases around other people. And so when they get into that emergency, being prepared at the workplace to take action is really important. We know that workplaces have to keep their people safe and they want them to go home at night in the same condition they came in. We worry about power outages, heart attacks, hurricanes, violence in the workplace. We have to make sure that workplaces are addressing a potential overdose in the same way. And because this medicine is now available, the training is very simple. I was just uh, literally at Congress two weeks ago training uh, with one of the universities in D.C., um, uh, staffers and members um, on how to use naloxone. Um, and it just is raising awareness that Congress is a workplace, too. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Everyone needs to make sure that they know how to do this. And one of the other great things is that when people have jobs and they learn skills, they take them with them. They don't leave the fact that they know how to put a tourniquet on because they learned it at work when they leave the, the, the plant, right? If they need to do a tourniquet on the baseball field, they know how to do it. Same thing here. They're going to know how to do uh, naloxone administration, and they're going to know that they need to have it available 
wherever they are. And um, this will, this is a force multiplier for workplaces to really lean into this. And that's what we're calling on on them to do. And I love that you're doing that because, you know, when I think about this and correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think about government run uh, occupations and uh, having a family that, you know, spent and dedicated their lives to the police force, et cetera. I mean, these are organizations that, you know, it does take a governmental, a state governmental initiative to be aware of it. But oh my goodness, you know, we're looking at ways if those folks were get trained, not just about themselves, but if they were trained in the people that they they're in front of, um, it would be a game. Look, I, I was one of the advocates for the epi, you know, the the, the injection yep. to put on airplanes because you never know when somebody is going to have an allergic reaction. And I know how hard that was to really get that moving, but to get that in schools. Right. You know, you never know what's going to happen. How do we remove the stigma on this? Because we have to we have to I'm going to make up a word destigmatize. No, that's a real word, ma'am. Yeah, there's two things. There's two things that, that we've seen as, as I've been talking to folks around the country. Uh, stigma is one of them, that these are people, you know, that, you know, maybe we don't want to take care of or that they, you know, they brought it on themselves. None of that is relevant if someone is dying in front of you and you can do something about it. And at the same time, as we've said, this is a this is a disease, substance use disorders, um, and it's something that we need to treat and give folks the chance to recover and get back into the workforce, get back to their lives, um, and really helping folks take away that stigma. And specifically, when we're talking about emergencies in front of them, to know you'd lean in if someone was having a heart attack and you had an AED on the wall, you need to do the same thing here yeah. and save the life. Um, so that's really important. And, and the other one that goes with stigma is this issue of legality. And is, is somebody going to come after me? Same kind of uh, world we went through with EpiPens and with AEDs to ensure that there's good Samaritan laws. And most of the states do have protections, both for civil and criminal, for, for good Samaritan laws, uh, for naloxone specifically, um, such that you should do what you can do. If you're doing your best effort, and thankfully naloxone can't hurt anyone, um, then you are covered and you should lean in and take that action. Yeah. I mean, I worked with the Congress people in my state around the VA. And what are we doing for our vets? Because it is a serious issue. Uh, and it's even more stigmatized, even asking for help. So you have your plate is full. Um, I want to ask you, how do people find out more of this? And how can how can the public support you? That's really the question here. Yeah, um, the where you can get resources is from nsc.org backslash and for this issue specifically respond ready so nsc.org backslash respond ready but nsc.org has all kinds of resources on all kinds of safety related issues from the workplace really to any place Um, and we have been providing support for drug-free workplaces for recovery-friendly workplaces all of the aspects of this very holistic perspective that a company needs to take to support their employees but what can the community do the community can get uh, aware they can lean into this try to avoid that first sort of stigma. This isn't me. This isn't my family. These must be, you know, other kinds of people. No, this is everyone. And Dr. Pat, at this point, when I'm talking to folks, there's very few people who don't know a story. They don't know oh. some, whether it's a kid in their high school, in their town, someone at work, um, a family member with 200 people a day, this is hitting all of our lives. And so my message to everyone is get educated, learn more, open your mind to, to, to understanding that this is something that you could save a life and understanding what it, it takes to do that. And it is making sure you have naloxone available with you wherever you are 
and that you're trained to use it and that you are ready to do so. Yeah. I want to, I know these are short interviews, but I must bring up one more place because this is what I see. I work with, I work in the recovery field as you know, this is my passion volunteer. Uh, The hardest thing to watch are what happens to young people, you know, kids in high school or even middle school, you know, just the hardest thing. I mean, just a couple of situations right now. It's very hard. What do we need to do to get this in the school system? Because I believe that's the largest body of, I think it's one of the large, you know, next to police, fire, those organizations that were United States all over, right? But the school system where we're starting to see these numbers that are actually recorded go through the roof. What what can we do to have a conversation with the educational system? Yeah, and we need to have it in, in every corner of our lives and schools are certainly one of them. Having naloxone there, if there's an emergency, a lot of school systems have already leaned into that, which is just fantastic. Working with their human human health, whatever the organization is in their state. I was when I was at Congress. I also got a chance to go to a meeting at the White House recently, and there are actually recovery high schools. I did not. I wasn't aware of that. Yep. They're set up just for folks, uh, kids that are struggling with this, um, and they are amazing. And I don't know if you have some in your state, wherever your audience uh, happens to be, but reaching out and understanding if those resources are available so that students can can perhaps get into a new environment. Um, they are game changing, and it was just amazing to hear the stories of the students now in recovery and and where they were headed. And now they're going to go off to college and law law degrees. It was just, um, you got to intervene and you've got to have the resources there to help somebody change whatever the dynamic is that's that's putting them in the situation Mm -hmm. that they're in. We don't deal directly with schools very much. We're primarily a workplace channel, uh, but but our workers have kids and their parents. And so uh, getting this information to them so that they can bring it home into their schools is also um, sort of a force multiplier for us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for all of you out there, especially my teacher friends, you are a workplace. Just want to yes. remind you. I just want to remind them of that just in case they're like not on board with that. But, you know, I want to thank you for this. This is important. And I love that you brought up the recovery high schools. I so love that you brought that up because there's something that there's something brilliant about what happens in an environment where you're around people people that are like you, you know, you don't stigmatize each other, but yet, you know, it's, it's like, look, you can go for days without food or water, but you know, to go for a minute without hope is devastating and it's killing. Um, I want to thank you today, but again, please give out the website and I'd love to know your personal message if I could. Yeah. It's nsc.org backslash respond ready. Um, Everyone can save a life right now in our country. If we're losing 200 people a day, Um, get trained, get aware, address whatever issues might be preventing you from looking at this issue. Um, Because I will tell you, um, we can we can really turn this around one person at a time to give everybody their second chance at life. Yeah. And if they have any questions, they can go to the website and ask you thank you so much for taking this on. But also thank you for paving the road for this. Because workplaces are the hidden what I call the hidden hidden place for addiction. And we don't talk about them. It's almost as if we act like nothing is going on in the workplace. It's just nothing happening over there. It's either on the streets or in the schools. But if we look at this closely, you know, what we find is a very hidden and deadly situation that could be remedied by what you're doing. That's the key. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning us in, turning us on. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody, welcome. I I have to tell you, while I call this the good news segment, I want to tell you why I call it a good news segment. Because every time I interview people like Dr. Nadine uh, uh, Abijadeh, did I get that right? 
Yes. My pronunciation is probably off. I want to say Abidjade, but it depends on whether you're from France or Italy. Uh, listen, this is a good news segment, but I want to tell you why it's a good news segment. Even though we're going to be talking about some things that are probably very personal to Dr. Nadine and me, we're bringing you information to educate, to talk about the importance, to talk about innovations. And when we talk about Liver Cancer Awareness Month, October, it is very important and it is very personal because you're going to hear from Dr. Nadine and, and me why this touches our hearts. It's not just a conversation that you pull something off a shelf. This is something that's personal to people. This is something where we want to save lives. Dr. Nadine, right? Isn't that true for you? Well, so I, I treat liver cancer and uh, it's I see so many patients that could have had such great interventions, but missed that window of opportunity because they didn't recognize they had some of the risk factors. And therefore, you just see patients who have more advanced disease rather than earlier where more curative options would have been on the table. Yeah. So it's really important to say, like, please get the screening. It's very easy and it's um, non-invasive. Yeah. I, I want to start with that, what you just said. I want to talk about what people need to know now. And what I mean by that, every time I do an interview like this, I like to bring people up to date because things change so quickly that what you may have heard a year ago may not be up to date because the innovations, the science, the technology is changing. So give us a snapshot on where we are today and what people should really know when we're talking about liver cancer, which is a deadly disease. Yes, it is. And so I'm going to focus on primary liver cancer, which is the cancer of the liver itself. And before people used to associate it with alcohol or drugs, et cetera, it's not anymore. One of the main risks, especially in the United States, is the fact that people, if they have obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, they can cause something called fatty liver, which can itself go into cirrhosis, or just even as fatty liver can cause liver cancer without cirrhosis. And the issue is people don't know this, and so they don't get the screening that's needed. Yeah. And that's what I mean about the landscape changing. You know, once upon a time, we were only talking about a very isolated how should we say, slice of the pie that was associated with either drugs, alcohol, combination of both. But now we're seeing the landscape change of, of people. You know, people have changed their body shapes, their landscapes, their habits have changed. So this is an update that people need to be aware of. Can I ask you, what are some of the numbers on this? How alerted should people be in the increase that you're seeing? So actually, if you look at HTC in the United States, about a third will be caused by the fatty liver syndrome rather than, and it's actually, if you look at the people who have fatty liver syndrome, only a minority will develop liver cancer, but there's so many people with fatty liver that don't even know they have fatty liver that it ends up by being a big proportion of people who have liver cancer is caused by um, fatty liver. Yeah. And I see that's the thing that uh, the reason I want to talk to you, because you see, this is the good news. The good news is if we can educate and update people and even make them aware when they go to their physicians, even for routine blood work, they can really be more and more aware. Um, I want to take a minute. What is the best place for people to go to? What website for those folks right now for them to find out more about what you and I are talking about? Um, I mean, of course, there's the CDC, the American Cancer Society all have information about how to, um, and the NIH to have information about liver disease, liver cancer, um, that is especially kind of made for patients, uh, 
um, so that it makes it a little bit digestible. Yeah. Now, I want to say something. You're the chief. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Of Interventional Radiology and Director of Clinical Research at the University of California, Irvine. Okay. So yes. this is a big deal. I went to school in California. I know when you come to do an interview like this, people don't know the depth and the breadth of what you are doing every day, what research is about, what the methodology is about, what the science is about. And I want to ask you a question directly related to that. What are you most excited about when you look out at the science and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I can't wait to, to do this particular project because it will save lives. What gets you both, what gets you most jazzed when you think about that for, as a professional? I think there's a couple of things that get me really, really jazzed. Um, some of them are combination therapy. So when we, when we, you know, it takes seven things for cancer to develop, believe it or not, like seven mutations in the body. And so I don't think one intervention can help. And I think having multiple interventions with different ways to attack it is one of the things that gets me really jet. And there's a lot of research going on about that right now. And there's also some upcoming technologies where we're going to potentially be treating it completely non-invasively and in a way that also helps with the immune system so that we can really combine those therapies with uh, all of it together. And I think that will, you know, the, there's a lot of technological device developments and also, you know, advances in the medications we can give that really have me very excited because we're yeah. going to be able to treat this in a way that's not toxic, but really very yeah. effective. You know, I was asked about a couple of weeks ago during an interview, I get asked the oddest questions, but they asked me a question. They said, you know, Pat, if you could go back in time and become a, you know, look at your profession and you're in your twenties, what would you study? And so what I say always shocks people. I said, I would become a doctor and I would study the research on nanotechnology. And they look at me like I've lost my mind. Like, what is that? But the reason I'm bringing it up is because you're sitting in the driver's seat for so much innovation, right? And at the bottom of this, your goal is to save lives, isn't it? Yeah. I, I never thought I would say saving lives and talk about liver cancer in the same breath because it wasn't too long ago where we couldn't. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, but... The things that are evolving very rapidly and, and there's been significant improvements. So yes, there is. Now, what do we want to tell people they need to be aware of? Now, I, I, I think folks always ask me after I do these shows, give me some symptoms. What should I be looking for? What are some signs outside of please go get, is it blood work that they could get? I don't even know. You're the expert. Tell us. <laughs> so it's very simple. It's an ultrasound and blood work. And the sad thing is even people who have the very known risk factors like hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and al alcoholic cirrhosis, only 24% of those are getting the six months ultrasound plus AFP, which is one blood work that, uh, every six months that's recommended by all the guidelines, including the American Association for the Liver Disease Study. So it's, um, it's an ultrasound and then one blood work. And really, you don't want to wait till you have symptoms. I have some patients that told me, oh, like I had some pain, but it's very nonspecific and it's not really, you shouldn't, when you're getting symptoms with the liver, it's, it's not good. No. So you want to do it before you have symptoms. No. But if you have diabetes, if you have, uh, if you have obesity, overweight, if you have metabolic syndrome, anything like that, just get your liver checked. Yeah. I, I want to make a point. 
uh, I, we're website, by the way, you know, the website we're sending people to is just like stellar. It is so good. But here's the thing I find when I talk about the liver there, most of the people don't even know what its function is. And I think if people knew what the liver does and how important it is, let's talk a minute about that. Because I think if people knew that they would treat it like their heart, <laughs> like, like, right. If somebody says something about your heart, people are like, I'm going to the doctor, but let's just have a, a minute where we're telling people what this liver does for us. I think one of the main thing it does is there's a, a lot of functions. Uh, one of the biggest ones is really to filter. It's, I call it the filter of the body. Um, Cause whenever you, whatever you eat is collected by the veins of the bowel, all comes together and goes into one big vein that goes to the liver and the liver cleans it up. So the simplest and like the, the biggest function is acting like the filter of the body. But of course it regulates some things with diabetes. It has other functions, even coagulation, like how, you, how bad if you cut yourself out faster, blood clots. All, if your liver is sick, all of these things are going to start being off. And so it really does a lot, but doesn't get a lot of recognition. I agree. It doesn't. And it's, and it's seriously important because there's so much that it does. And when things don't go right, you know, there are so many side effects we, we, we get, but we don't know. I mean, this is why I'm so excited about, I've lost family to this. Um, I've lost friends to this. So I understand it and I understand how important it is, but the innovations you're talking about, let's just remind people what they are, and how they can speak with their physicians to get things checked. What do we want to tell people? Make sure you tell them that you'd like to make sure that you're getting an ultrasound and an AFP. That's the, that's the little blood test to make sure that there's nothing underlying. And here's the other thing I, I have to say. People see things on ultrasound and then they're told, well, you don't have any of the risk factors. So don't worry about it. It's not a cancer. And they just get, you know, an ultrasound six months later and it's doubled in size. And, you know, they're like, oh, but you don't have any of the risk factors. Please just, if you see anything in your liver, get it properly investigated. I know people want to hear that it's the best because it makes you feel good. You're like, okay, no, he, the doctor said it's not cancer. But unless they went in there and got tissue and made sure it's not, there's no way to really be sure. Yeah. And by the way, aren't we also educating our physicians worldwide now too? I mean, I, I, I think the burden is on us as, as patients to go in and be educated, but there's also a gap in education in certain physicians. And we just want to have everybody be on board, right? I mean, don't you find that part of your role and of course your colleagues is to make sure physicians, at least in the United States, but also globally are aware now that we're not just talking about people people that are at risk that hep C, you know, alcoholism, we're talking about something new that everybody should be made aware of, right? Yes. And I, I think that there's been some studies that have actually like epidemiology studies that looked at this. And a lot of times, as I, as I was saying, even the 24% that I was talking about earlier for screening is in patients that are at risk, and we're not getting the screening. And a lot of them is because the orders were not placed. And so some of the studies several of them have concluded that there needs to be education on the physician side as well, because there's a lot of innovation and it's really hard if you're a community practitioner or general practitioner to keep up with all the innovations in all the different fields in medicine. 
Um, it's easy for me to talk about the liver because that's my specialty, but <laughs> everything else is. And so it's really important to have physician education that is targeted as well so that they are aware of these things. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Fortunately for me, I've had physicians that have made it my responsibility to walk. I mean, I have a doctor that you can't even walk in the room without you tell him where you think you are on the scale of symptoms. I mean, that's, that's, that's really, I think that's, the, those are the physicians of the future and of the past. I want to thank you for today. I want to ask you a couple of questions. You know, what does this mean to you personally? I mean, you don't really sign up for a body of work like you have without having a real personal motivation. I, I've had, a, just like you, I've, ha I've lost family members to liver cancer. It wasn't primary, it was metastatic, it's also a lot of, but it's still, um, it's really hard when it comes, you know, to the personal, yeah. Um, yeah. And so that that's partly why I'm motivated to really stomp it out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I get asked questions. Why have you started to expand and become an all positive talk network is because I've lost too many people for suicide. Uh, you know, if I can do something to change the landscape, so are you. I want to thank you. Please give out the website again. And then one last question. I'd love to know your personal message and what you'd like to leave us with today. Um, well, I think my own personal message is remember, you are your own personal advocate and don't give up on yourself. And there's always hope and there's always things we can do. And there's always innovation. Things are getting better. So, you know, and please look after your liver. Thank you. Thank you. That website, one last time. The American Cancer Society. Uh, there's also the National Institutes of Health who have educate, and there's one especially for patients, and then the CDC, of course, CDC. Thank you so much, Dr. Nadine. Thank you for everything you're doing. And for all of you listening, we can't say it enough times. Please, you may have to educate your physician. You may have to ask questions. You may not like the answer you get. And then you may have to look for alternatives. Remember, your health comes first. We'll see you next time. Are you affected by addiction and struggling to find hope? You don't have to feel this way anymore. Welcome to the peace we crave. Find your freedom in addiction recovery with me, your host, Tanya Day. There is hope. As a spiritual life recovery coach, I use a unique holistic approach of meditation, Reiki energy and sound healing, and spiritual life transformation to help you find peace and serenity. If you are sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and had enough, I get it. I've been there and I can provide a listening and sympathetic ear. Creating calm in your recovery is possible. If you're ready for help and hope towards your freedom in recovery, join into the Peace We Crave show with me as I help you find your freedom in addiction recovery. It all starts now. Wow. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm Dr. Pat, and I get to take this wonderful journey with the most incredible Tanya D. And Tanya, before we start, I want you to make sure you give out your website because and give out how people can connect, because I know that during this show, we're talking about emotional sobriety. However, this is 101 things that your sponsor, your program never told you about emotional sobriety, right? Uh, oh. I don't know why that is, but it is the foundational piece. So before we get started, because this is extremely important, it's extremely important to get you to the table, but this is the one thing that will help you stay sober. So how do people find out more about you? Let's start with that. And then we're going to dig right in. 
All right, great. Thank you so much. Um, my website's the best place to, place to find me, uh, www.thepeacewecrave.com. It's the best way. I'm on social media all over the place. The Peace We Crave. I mean, you can find me anywhere. So. Okay. Um, now, I gave my view of what I think about the topic for today. And I don't know how long it was, you know, how far down the rabbit hole I was before the words emotions even came to the table. But this is really something that you integrate and lead with to help people understand this. So let's talk about emotional sobriety. What does that mean to you? What does that come to mean to you now? Yeah, it's something that I, when I first got into recovery, I never thought that I would be talking about something like this, let alone being okay with it. Yeah. And it's, it's, as you know, um, you know, when I'm using a substance, I don't want to feel anything I'm using to numb out. I don't want to feel a thing. I want to just disappear into my, whatever it is of that drug of choice that day. So, um, the feelings were just never, ever a thing that I even understood. And I didn't, and it's interesting when I first got into recovery, people would go, how do you feel? And I go, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> and they say, no, 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 honey. How do you feel? And I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. What are you, what's a feeling? I don't, I didn't, <laughs> I couldn't even, it was so bad, Dr. Pat. I couldn't even label what it was. I couldn't even label how I was feeling. So yeah. for me, emotional sobriety, um, first and foremost was what is this? What, yeah. I'm feeling this way. What is this for me? And I, you know, I thought I felt I knew what happiness was. I thought I knew what being afraid was. I really didn't until I didn't have my, my drug of choice anymore to run to and, you know, help comfort me. My best friend went away. So I had to start labeling these things. I had to start really paying attention to how I was feeling. And it was, oh my gosh, it was so freaking scary. Like that first year of recovery, I was like, what is this? I don't understand. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't even put words to it, but the biggest part was, um, for me was just starting to notice it. Yeah. And starting, yeah. yeah. And starting to notice it was, was, was the critical piece before even labeling it. Um, that, that really, really, really was the biggest thing. And it was like such an eye opening thing. Cause it's so easy to do. It's so easy to be like, Oh, okay. There it is. What is that? That happened before. What was it like? And then I start noticing these things and I'm picking them and I'm remembering it because I'm not using a substance to blot out my memory. So I'm able to start to uh, get some tools in my toolbox. Um, just noticing how I'm feeling. Yeah. But, you know, we touched upon this. I want to ask you about this because this is like the coolest thing to talk about, because when you're used to numbing all of that, it's like a brand new thing. It's like, what? My heart hurts, right? Do you remember that time? Like, what? My heart hurts. And, you know, I mean, I don't tell me, tell me this. I rarely cried. And then once I learned to cry, cry, I cried a lot. I still cry. But you see, that's just one thing people may be looking at us saying, what the heck are these two talking about? But when you numb yourself, you numb yourself. End of the story. You cut off most of your life. Emotions are part of it. So, you know, let's talk about now the fact that the genie is out of the bag because this was never talked about much. And now it is. So why is it so important to us now? You know, what happens when we discover feelings? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So a lot of things can happen. Um, sometimes not so great because I don't know how to react. I don't know what to do. Um, and sometimes things are great. Like I just remember that that first time, I feel like I've said this before, but the first time I really noticed that like the sky was bluer and the grass was greener. And I was just, I got this feeling of like love in my heart. And I was like, Ooh, what's that? I mean, I've kind of felt these things, but not on such a deep level. And, um, it was, it was just so important for me to just notice them and start to label them and even start to say them out loud to people. Like, is, is this, is this what it is? Is this, is this, wow. How does it feel for you? I don't, I mean, I don't know, but I know I'm laughing a little bit, but I'm not laughing. I'm laughing at myself because that you're absolutely right. You know, we're in, we're in an area now that is foreign to us. Right. You know, I, I mean, it reminds me of having this little two and a half year old over on the weekend. So I play ping pong as a sport table tennis. So I think everybody knows. Right. So this was my first introduction. This little child didn't understand what a ping pong ball was or a bat. Now, this is a really smart kid. So within no time, she was hitting the ball. But, you know, for her, it was a new experience. Like, what is this? I don't mean to downplay this, but I really want to get at this. This is really a baby step in sobriety. And I want to emphasize that we're laughing a little bit about it. But it was really no laughing matter to have these feelings come up. And I tell you, I lost my mom in my first year and my sister in my second. And I'm telling you, I was like, what is happening, right? But how do you tease this apart for people? How do you get to these trigger reactions to things? So um, I take a pause. The biggest thing I learned in recovery is, oh, I'm feeling something. Okay, let me pause, notice it. Let me try to put a, a label on it. Let me try to see what this is. And just and the biggest thing too is not re- the hardest part is not reacting. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I I was such a crier when I was new in recovery. I was crying before. <laughs> I'm still crying. I was, but then there was this horrible, it was like horrible, ugly crying. And I didn't understand how actually therapeutic that was for me. Yeah. Like I ugly yeah. cried this weekend because I had to. And um, you know, and it's something that I can just do. And I don't have to react in the sense that. You know, um, I don't know about you, but I came in very angry as well. I was like angry at everything. I hated oh, you. Yeah. I hated the world, but God, I didn't have to. Re- God I, hated God. Oh, please. How society treated women. Oh, let's not even get me started. Right. right. So there was so many things for me to be angry about. And I hated myself. And I just, I just like stopped reacting so much to that. It was almost like I had the emotion or the thing. And this has taken a long time to do. I had the emotional thing. I kind of put it like on this little shelf next to me and I kind of just had it there. So I didn't quite have to do anything with it just yet. I could just have it there. And that helped a lot, just kind of compartmentalizing it in a way until I was ready to actually deal with it. Because yeah, the first like year or two, like you said, if those things happened to me, I I probably would end up in a mental institution, to be honest, because I was just so raw. I just didn't know. But the compartmentalizing and kind of like putting them in like a little area to be like, okay, they're here, but I'm not going to react to them right now. I'm just going to pause and I'm going to let them be. And then maybe at some point when I'm got my big girl pants on or something, I can maybe deal with them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, let me ask you about this because I didn't really get really, 
I didn't have a, a spiritual infiltration system until, uh, let's say, maybe seven years. That's when I had my real spiritual awakening. Uh, but, you know, it's not that I didn't really immerse you. But look, if, if you walk in those doors, there's something spiritual happening and get you there. I'm just saying. But I wanted to ask you about this because I had this sense in some arenas that it's all good. It's all good. Some of the spiritual practices that will come out and say, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Right. I, I want to talk about this for a minute because I want to be very clear that there are ways to let go of things without bypassing them. Talk about spiritual bypass for a minute because you are a spiritual coach, right? This is the approach you take. So this has got to be a topic that comes up a lot for you. Yeah, it really does. Um, I see people um, and I, it's the one part of, if anybody's a 12 step person, it's the one part of 12 step that I just, I, I cringe because people go, Oh, you know, you're not feeling a certain way. You're feeling bad. Just go help somebody else. And that's fine to a point, I guess, when you're newer or when you're really not sure, or you're kind of just, you know, trying to feel your way through. But at some point, and I've seen it a lot where people just continue to do that for the years and the decades and the decades. And then they're just like, they're, it's just like, they're just these voids that just kind of like exist and they just go and do things for people. And it's like, okay, but how, how do you feel? And they don't even know. Um, they've never, they've never processed the feeling they've, maybe they've stuck into my little box here and they've never done anything with it. Um, you know, they've just never actually been able to, um, acknowledge what these things are. And then, and then the biggest thing is getting to acceptance, right? Getting to acceptance. This is how it is to feel this way. It sucks to feel pain. It sucks to feel sadness. It sucks. But if I don't feel that sadness, there may be some joy around the corner that I'm not going to experience because I'm too busy helping somebody else, or I'm too busy distracting myself from how I'm feeling. And I'm too busy. I can't look at it because, oh, I got to just, it has to go away. It's bad. It has to go away. But unfortunately, um, hate to break it to people, but we're human beings yeah. and we yeah. have feelings and this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think you're hitting a really good point that doesn't come up that often. You know, when we when we're talking about emotions, we're talking about the wide range. And I mean, this is like being a cherry picker. You know, it's not like you're out there and you could say, I'm going to pick this today, but I'm not going to pick this because we've been doing that most of our lives. We're really good at that, aren't we? Right. Let me take the one that is going to make me feel all good. Let me just take that one as if the rest of the things don't exist. And, you know, I remember this so clearly. See, something happens when you get sober. Let's talk about this because it's related to emotional sobriety. Something happens. And, and, and I wish you would explain this because the something that happened for me is I had a new pair of eyes the rose colored glasses were off and I saw the world differently. I saw my life differently. Some of the things that I agreed to do never held up again. How about you? Yeah. I, I'm so glad you asked that. Cause I was thinking about that the other day. I, I was um, yesterday, I was actually at an expo and these people, I'm so glad I was there. It was just a holistic thing, but I was the only person there with addiction uh, related services. And these women come up to me, they go, we have somebody who wants to kill herself. 
And I go, oh my gosh. And Sheila comes running over and we have this beautiful conversation. And I was just so glad that I was there to actually like help her with that and like be there with her for that. But it's interesting how I've, I've shifted my thinking so much where I, I feel such love and compassion for the never felt love and compassion for anybody. I was like, everybody sucks. Forget all these people. And nobody's like me. I'm whatever. And, and now I just have this, such this love and compassion for especially people that are sick and suffering. I mean, I just, I will, I will, (laughs) I've let people say sometimes the meanest things to me. Because I'm like, you know what, if that's what you need in order to feel better and you're not going to use today, say whatever the heck you want. I don't care because I just want you to live because you're so beautiful. And and they say that God loves drunks and babies. And, you know, like I just the the word is such a, a, a special position being, um, you know, whatever your drug of choice is, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. We're such, yeah, we're in such a special position to be able to really understand each other and really yeah. help each other. But what you're talking about, I want to talk about this. We're going to take a really short break for people to get to know more about you. Uh, but what we're talking about here is what I call the bridge, you know, the sobriety bridge. And there's only one sobriety bridge for me, and you happen to be talking about it today. Of course, there are many. I don't I, I don't want to sound like there aren't, you know, all roads lead to home, but there is a sobriety bridge. And there's this one bridge that you go across, and you really must go across this bridge. And it's the bridge that, you know, Tanya is talking about today. So you're listening to The Peace We Crave with Tanya D and me, Dr. Pat. We're going to take a short break because this is the bridge and, and believe this, we're talking about people in sobriety, but what we're talking about is for all y'all. It really is all you. And if you are even close to somebody that's on the sobriety journey, you're going to need to learn about the stuff we're talking about to understand the dynamic of it. Let's take a very short break, Emily. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Before we go ahead, Tanya, I want you to, again, give out your website, social media group, um, and and we're going to go through the emotional sobriety checklist, better known as the bridge. But at, when we go at, when we go through it, people can come back here and listen to it, listen to the show and work with you. How do they do that? What's the best way? Um, my website, uh, thepeacewecrave.com um, and all social medias. I'm all over the place at The Peace We Crave. I call this the bridge. People call it other things. I, I have a friend that says I'm being very kind when I call this a bridge because for them, it was not a bridge. It was like a foxhole. So take us through the checklist, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh my gosh, a foxhole. That's so interesting. Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> I feel like mine too was kind of like a bridge with holes. Like I kept kind of falling down exactly. the water and I had to get back up. <laughs> totally. So yeah, so this checklist. Um, so uh, the first thing I have on here is accepting things as they are. That's a tall order. That is not something that happened to me overnight, but the more that I'm able to just say it is what it is. I also say, you know, I in in my spiritual program. Everything is already happened. There's already been a plan. So some very smart women said that to me very early on. It's already been preordained. Just you just got to go with the flow. Yeah. 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 So accepting things as they are. Yeah. And then no longer holding on to the past. Oh my gosh. Like if you can get to this point, oh my gosh, it's so freeing when the past does not control my life anymore. 
Uh, and that's, I'm still actually on that journey. I'm sorry. That, that is like a daily practice. I'm right. Right. <laughs> yes. Let's just be clear to people. This we is all, all the time. Progress. Yes. And I'm on this path, path right now of no longer accepting my past. Cause my past, there's some not so fun things that happened. Right. And which is, you know, everybody has their story and I'm just doing my best to try to not let it control me anymore. Not let it be that thing. That's going to take me out because I, I can't, I don't, I don't want to be taken out. I want to, you know, I want, I want this, this life thing. Yeah. And then uh, being able to face your emotions without pushing them down. Oh my gosh. All I did was push them down when I used, that's what I did. So um, just seeing them and being able to face them and then doing what you need to do. So if it's like this weekend when I was ugly crying and I had to lay down for an hour, well, Hey, that's okay. Because then I was able to be present in other aspects of my life and I was able to do what I needed to do. So, you know, I faced the thing and I didn't push it down. And then that that's perfect. That leads into the next one, not judging yourself for experiencing difficult emotions. I am the biggest critic of myself. I don't know about you, but I just will judge yeah. myself all day long. Yeah. And it's, and it's totally okay to go ugly cry and do what you need to do. And I'm not, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm taking care of myself. And biggest thing is I'm not judging myself for it. Yeah. yeah. And then being able to reflect on what may have caused you to experience a certain emotion. So go back to the past thing. The past is, oh gosh, it there's, yeah, there's, it, there's a big, uh, yeah. lot, a yeah. lot of really deep stuff. There. I have had to get a lot of help with this one. And mm -hmm. I just want to say this for people, this idea to reflect on what have caused your certain emotions. This is where you get help. You work with Tanya, you work with somebody. This one is excruciatingly difficult. And I do not believe you can get there by yourself because our natural reaction will be to cut those painful things off and you will not remember them. So the idea you're talking about is let's get at the root cause, right? Right. And not be on that judgment train. You want to talk about a bridge judgment train, right? I'll just bring right. that in because- you know, I could ride that all day long and yeah. then I won't be able to really look at the thing and get the help that I need. Yeah, totally. Um, and then having deep, rich connections with other people like that, that has enhanced my life more than I ever thought. I, <laughs> as much as I say, I hated people when I came and I did. Um, and now I just, I just have this love for people and I have these yeah. connections and like me and you even connect. Right. And we've never yeah. met in person, but like, no. we, you know, we connect in a, in such a way because we understand this, this language of the heart that we're talking about. That's right. So, yep. So that, that really deep connection and then not blaming others for your actions. <laughs> Take it. I want y'all to take a deep breath right yeah, now. Yeah, this is a lot. You know, this is take a, lot. a deep breath right here. Let's just call this the two-minute warning right here. Yeah, right. Because listen to the words that Tanya's saying, not blaming others for your action. You know, we've gotten so good at blaming that we think it doesn't sound like blaming anymore. Exactly. I mean, we've created this whole new characterization, which we don't realize it's blaming. Yep. Right. Uh, I, I'm sure you're going to add complaining to that one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Complaining. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. oh, I but complained. You, but don't you have to get to all of those before you can get to appreciation and gratitude? I mean, oh, if you're absolutely. not cleaning those things up, then this is why I'm saying this two minute warning at the football game. If you are not looking at the ones that Tanya just said right now before the, the next ones you're going to have a tough time with, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that is that appreciation and gratitude. Like we only have this right now because we've done this kind of stuff when we looked at those things. Right. So yeah. these are, yeah, these are, this, this is not, I just want everybody to know, these are not things that are going to happen overnight. This takes a lot of work working with other people, getting, getting support and what you need. And you're able, and the last two here, the last one, uh, the la- second to last one, you're able to regulate your actions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But we should I'm, do a whole show on that. Oh my gosh. We got, seriously. we could do a whole show. Let's do a whole show on that because even the best people in sobriety think they're regulating their actions. And the next thing, you know, I mean, look, the next thing, you know, they're throwing a big book at you. And so, you know, this is one of these things that you really have to understand are all emotionally related, right? That's a big one. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember the first time um, someone said something nasty to me at work and I didn't like, I didn't like react in a horrible way and like try to like take a swing at them because that's what I used to do. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I didn't have to do that. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I, I so mean, good. look at, I and mean, we do stupid things, right? Like I remember going after about a 330 pound guy with a pool stick. But you <laughs> see, all of this is part of this last one. Talk about the last one because this is really the end game, isn't it? So not letting those strong emotions dictate your yeah. behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can have all the emotion in the world about something, but it does not mean I need to say something inappropriate or I need to take a swing at somebody or yeah. you know, whatever in the pool or whatever it was. Yeah. Like I don't need to do those things. They don't have to, my emotions don't have to rule my life just because I'm feeling them and I'm noticing them and I'm, I'm having them here. doesn't mean they have to rule my life and rule my behavior. Yeah. And I want to be very clear about this. I know we've only got a couple of minutes left that we're going to leave you with a very powerful uh, closing message, but I want to be very clear about this. We are not talking about being doormats. Susan Denae talks about this a lot. We're just, in, in her words, she would say, you just don't want to be the bulldozer, but you're not really talking about being a doormat because that's something else you have to learn in sobriety. And it is emotionally related. Like, when do I let my codependence get so far down the rabbit hole that I can't speak up for myself? You see, and that's all strong emotions dictating your behavior in a way that people don't see very much, right? Because it's passive, but it all needs to be taken care of, doesn't it? Absolutely. Ah, Oh my God. We talked about a lot before we go to the closing message, which is a powerful one. Please tell everybody how they can work with you, how they can connect with you because connecting is so important. Yeah. And connecting is something that's going to help you with your emotional sobriety. I I can, I can't do it without other people. So the peace we crave.com you can find me there. Um, All my contact information is there. And of course, social media, just the peace we crave. Yeah. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with? And thank you for taking this topic on. What a great checklist. Uh, So if anybody out there is struggling and you, you need to find hope, you're like, how do I get this emotional sobriety thing? If you're sick and tired of feeling all this certain ways, had enough, you don't have to feel this way anymore. Join us and find peace and serenity in your addiction recovery. Yeah. I hope Tanya decides to have like an entire weekend retreat on this because there's no better way to become and be vulnerable around this and heal than to do it with people that are on the same journey. It is one of the most critically important parts of sobriety. And it's my opinion, Tanya, I don't know how you feel. It is my opinion that without this 
it is a really, really tough road to stay sober, right? Yeah, it is the crux of my sobriety. If I didn't have this, I, I, I don't know where I'd be. Yeah, that's why I play ping pong. Tanya, thank you so much for everybody out there. Remember, do not think you have to take this journey alone. You've been listening to The Peace We Crave. Find your freedom in addiction recovery with me, your host, Tanya D, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Tune in the first Monday of each month at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, as we take you on a spiritual life recovery coach journey and share unique holistic approaches. Let's stop struggling in recovery and restore hope. Join us for each show as we design a pathway to peace and serenity in addiction recovery. You don't have to struggle in recovery anymore. Let me help you find the peace we crave. For more information, visit thepeacewecrave.com.